0: We'll be turning, interestingly, to the book of the Revelation, and um, it'll be in the early part of the book. You know that for some weeks, some months now, we've been blessed and enriched week after week by a series of lovely studies that uh, Dr. Isles has led us through chapter by chapter uh, through this book, and um, we have reveled in the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, seeing more and more of him whom God has highly exalted. And we have seen time after time the evidences there that He is indeed uh, the Christ the Lord. He is King of kings and Lord of Lords. We notice too that um, the letter has been sent as a pastoral letter for the encouragement of the church in a time of Um, great discouragement and challenge and threat, actually. But also within the larger letter, there are a few specific letters, individual letters to churches then in existence. And one of them, the first of them, actually, the letter to the church at Ephesus, we've got it in the first seven verses of chapter two of the book, that's the one that I want us to uh, consider um, this morning, if we could, um, and I hope that it'll be helpful. It's a lovely little letter, but in a sense, it's also a very challenging, maybe even a threatening letter in many respects. It comes in at least three major segments. The first part of it, the first few verses, and verse 6, are a commendation by the Lord Jesus He's showing and acknowledging to his people their faithfulness in serving him over a period, about the same period of time that we've been in existence as a church here, over some 40-odd years. Then he expresses his concern about them. He's not 100% happy, far from it, and that's what we're going to focus on. And he gives a corrective command to them. So we've got a commendation from the Saviour, We've got his concern expressed. Um, We could call it a condemnation, actually. Um, And then this command. The the, um, commendation that he gives to them is beautiful. He comments on their good works. Um, And what he's referring to here is all-out effort on their part. He's writing to a church where people have really put their shoulder to the wheel. They have sought to serve the Lord with energy and diligence and faithfulness. And the Lord acknowledges that. They were not just a spectator congregation. They were not just turn up um, now and again and having done church, as it were. So he commends them for the effort that they've put in to maintaining or establishing and maintaining the testimony of the Lord Jesus in that, that pagan city. It would do us good to just go through some of the history of what they had um, been through. But take it as from the Lord that he is commending them for this all-out effort that they would put into their witness. He commends them for, for their patience, In other words, they had been courageous and faithful to the Lord in times of suffering and hardship. They had patiently endured what they were called upon to go through. And the Lord Jesus is very much aware of that. He acknowledges that. And um, the church is commended in that way. They're commended for their doctrinal purity. It was an an age when there were people purporting to be... um, um, apostles and they were not the congregation at, at Ephesus were very alert to that sort of error coming in and by God's grace they had made a tr- maintained a true testimony and a true set of doctrinal bases for their work there and the Lord saw that and acknowledged that he also acknowledged that they and this is an extraordinary one they hated beautifully. This was a church that hated what the Lord hated. They hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. We won't go into the details of what those deeds were but just to say that it was a vile set of practices and they were opposed to it that vehemently as the Lord himself was. And he says so in those first few verses. But then we come to the expression of his concern. These are the words that he, um, having acknowledged all those good points, he was aware of those. Nevertheless, he says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else... I will come quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Twice in that brief statement, the Lord Jesus calls for repentance amongst his people and the reason is they have left their first love. Something is missing. An essential factor is missing. So much that is commendable and we're a church could congratulate themselves. Yeah, we have been faithful, we have been patient, we have been doctrinally um, very discerning and so on. But the Lord Jesus has got something seriously against this congregation. One of the best taught congregations ever. The Apostle Paul having um, ministered there for so long as he did and so on. Well... I'm just wondering to myself how the elders of the church there and how the congregation at, at, um, uh, at the Ephesian church um, received that message and what happened. But brothers and sisters, the exercise of my mind and my heart today is what does the Lord see when he looks at us as a local church? I'm not sure that we do so well even on the first few matters of uh, how we assert how we serve him and so on i hope that doctrinally we are very careful and so on but it's this one that the lord himself focuses on as the important issue that needs attention and his his threat to them it, it's a very clear warning he tells them to remember he tells them to repent he repeats it for them to repent and if they don't if they choose not to te- treat this matter with um, appropriate seriousness, he's got a response. The Lord Jesus himself, he's speaking. This is the, the voice of the Lord Jesus recorded. He says, I will take, he'll take away the lampstand, take the, the lamp out of its place. Now that means they w- he would remove their existence as a heaven-recognised church. They could still have had their congregation going. They could have still been registered locally. They could be, still have their building and their program in place. The good activities could still be proceeding. It would be a hollow shell. It would be just an empty religious shell. It would be nothing for the Lord. The preaching could continue. The insistence on doctrinal purity could be maintained. The full church program of doing good things... ...could go ahead under good management, but it would be nothing in the eyes of heaven. How do I know that? Because in verse 20 of the chapter before, we're told that the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches... That's the identity that heaven attaches to those seven churches. Remove the lampstand, you remove, essentially, the church in its identity as far as our Lord is concerned. Well, the reason why I want us to consider this this morning, because it troubles me to read that in a church with about the same age history as we have, a church that has a, a background of good, sound teaching and of evangelical outreach into their community from early on that we need to take notice of what our Lord Jesus is saying here and the, it calls for an individual attention to what he says. The address, the, the message is addressed to the church, the leadership of the church, but the response is required individually as some of you would know and um, even as recently as yesterday morning at the prayer meeting here there was there have been prayers go up to our heavenly father that this church would be a light of testimony on this hill and sending the gospel not only into this community but to the ends of the earth and by God's grace that has been happening over the years but the testimony is at threat. If the matter of the love of God, which is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit when we're born again, if that is being compromised amongst us, the rest is is just a waste of time. To have, we we'll try and grasp a full import of these, the significance of these words, by looking at the meaning, the biblical given meaning of the word. Love. They'd left their first love. Now some time ago we had a a glance um, in another set of thoughts about the the matter of uh, the love uh, mentioned to the church at Ephesus and we saw that it had at least three major applications. One is a true love of heart for the Lord Jesus himself. That we can say we love him because he first loved us to look at that, to examine that reality. The second is love for our brothers and sisters. Is that a genuine operating reality in our lives? And the third is love for those who are without Christ and without hope in the world. We'll look at then the meaning of that word love, the biblical definition, and hopefully as we do that, each of us examine the quality um, of the love, of the manifestation of the love of God that's emanating from our lives. The Holy Spirit is willing to implant the love of God within our hearts. How are we going to respond to that? Well, the word that that the Lord Jesus uses there is the same word that is beautifully and so helpfully Defined for us in the uh, first uh, letter to the to the uh, Corinthian church at chapter thirteen, we often refer to this chapter in marriage ceremonies. Well, we need to refer to it perhaps more frequently than we do. In that, in, in behavioural terms, not in theoretical or philosophical terms, but in actual behavioural terms, the Holy Spirit has given us definitions of what this love, biblical love, is. And it doesn't always accord with what we have been culturally conditioned to attach to the word love. It would be well worth our taking note of some of the comments. We obviously can't look at all of them this morning, but we'll just look at some of the characteristics that we have outlined in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The chapter starts with this. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Now throughout the whole of the church age, clear, elegant, sound, biblical preaching has been absolutely basic in the, amongst the responsibilities that the church has. Our preaching is arguably the most important means we have of proclaiming the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to the Great Commission. It should be bringing blessing and encouragement and correction and instruction in righteousness to the hearers. Our preaching should exalt and glorify our Lord himself, our glorious Saviour, and point men and women to him. That's the sort of thing that our preaching should do. But this warning comes to us. In the divine definition, even the most splendid of preaching that's not motivated by genuine God-given love amounts to nothing more than unpleasant din. It's noisy, it's wasted breath, it's showy, it's valueless not my words though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love i'm become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal now for all of us who occupy this pulpit that is a very serious warning the very first element that's spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The chapter starts with that assertion and it concludes with a a sort of an overarching summary phrase saying, Now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now try and get our minds around that. By grace we're saved through faith. Faith is essential in our salvation, it's so important. Uh, The hope that we have imparted when we come to Christ, that glorious expectation of that which lies ahead, the wonderful message that we have for a lost world. Glorious indeed. But the scriptural portion here is, now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of of these is love. Verse 2 of that <clears throat> Corinthian passage goes further <clears throat> pointing out that even scholarly and extensive biblical knowledge is assessed, is assessed similarly without love it becomes worthless it says the same about faith that could remove mountains unless it's exercised in love the love of god that this holy spirit wants to impart to us where Wasting that gift. The same he says about kindness to the poor and even martyrdom. Possible to give your life for the cause. If it's not done in this manner for the love of Christ and by virtue of the love of Christ embedded within us, you've wasted your effort, you've wasted your life. These are very heavy truths. And they're portrayed to us in language that just shatters our complacency if we pause for any length of time to think about them. We've got to ask ourselves, are my lips moving at the impulse of his love or for some other purpose? Is the motivation right or is it not? What is it that moves me to... To think as I do, to act or to speak or to write or to email or whatever. What moves me to do that? Am I being prompted and motivated and governed in my living by the love of Christ that's shed abroad in my heart by the Holy Spirit? To put the same question positively, am I reflecting this love firstly towards the Lord himself, Am I reflecting it towards my brothers and sisters or do I rationalize unchrist like thoughts about certain brothers and sisters trying to justify myself in what are actually hostile thoughts towards fellow believers? We need to look at these things and be prepared <clears throat> to have the Holy Spirit bring us under scrutiny we'll touch on just some of the criteria that follow in chapter 13 of um, 1 Corinthians. Um, They're listed for us from about verse 4 onward. The first one says this, Love suffers long and is kind. It's a word that refers to a person who, though they've been inconvenienced or taken advantage of, even repeatedly will not be upset or angered. One of the church fathers, whose name I always have difficulty pronouncing, we call him Chrysostom, I never get it right, Um, he put it this way in in commenting on that characteristic. I quote, It is a word which is used of the man who is wronged and who has it easily in his power to avenge himself, but... ...will never do it, end of quote. So patience, this characteristic, never retaliates. In common parlance, this love that we're speaking of is not touchy. It does not get peeved by an assumed or actual slight. That's not natural... That's God-given, that sort of capability. Verse 4 goes on, love is kind. Well, kindness, this aspect of love means to be useful, serving, gracious. It's active goodwill. And it's consistent with our Saviour's teaching that this love not only exists in relation to those who are nice and pleasant and close to us, But extends to our enemies, those who are our adversaries. It finds expression in the kindnesses that we can express in the home, of course, but it has its wider opportunities in the church and in the wider community. It is kind. Lovely word. The verse 4 goes on further Love is not jealous. It does not envy. I've got a quote from um, John MacArthur Jr.'s commentary on this particular word, and this is what he says about it. I'm quoting now. When love sees someone who is popular, successful, beautiful or talented, it is glad for them and never jealous or envious. When Paul was imprisoned, probably in Rome, some of the younger preachers who then served where he had ministered, were trying to outdo the Apostle out of envy. They were so jealous of Paul's reputation and accomplishments that, with their criticism, they intended to cause him additional distress while he suffered in prison. Paul did not resent their freedom, their success, or even their jealousy. Though he did not condone their sin, he would not return envy for envy but was simply glad that the gospel was being preached, whatever the motives, Philippians 1.15-17. He knew that the message was more powerful than the messenger and that it could transcend weak and jealous preachers in order to accomplish God's purpose, end of quote. Love is not jealous of other people's capabilities, ministries or whatever. Love does not brag or parade itself is the next criterion that we have for the love of God that he wants to not only shed abroad in our hearts but have expressed in our lives. The Christians there at Corinth were described by one or two commentators as spiritual show-offs. Love does not parade itself. It doesn't brag. C.S. Lewis Actually, says bragging is and I quote him the utmost evil end of quote now that needs some explanation and the explanation is this because bragging puts ourselves first and others including the Lord behind us in priority everything else is behind us and another authority says It's ironic that as much as most of us dislike bragging in others, we are so inclined to brag ourselves. We need to examine ourselves, don't we? Only the love that comes from our Lord Jesus Christ can save us from flaunting our knowledge, our abilities, our gifts and accomplishments, real, imagined, Or exaggerated. God help us. It does not parade itself. Love is not arrogant, it's not puffed up. As a person who had a very clear understanding of the person and standing of our Lord Jesus Christ, the truly great man of God, John the Baptist, made a couple of classic statements. Um, concerning our Saviour, both of which I share with you in regard to this matter. This was a matter who was greater as a prophet because the Lord Jesus Christ mm. proclaimed him, said of him, assessed him as being such a great prophet of God. He said of himself, I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. He wasn't bunging it on. He was giving a frank assessment of where he stood, where his ministry was in relation to that of our Lord and Saviour. In fact, he went further later on and said, he must increase, (coughs) pardon me, but I must decrease. Well, as we just progressively go through these factors, brothers and sisters, I know that it's very easy to think of some of these negatives and that yes, I know somebody like that, I know somebody who, mani- who um, manifests that characteristic. The challenge for us today is to do what we do as we come around the Lord's table each Sunday morning. Let a man examine himself. What we see may not be as pretty as we'd like it to be. Well, the, the, the um, criteria keep flowing. Love is not rude. Fair enough. This feature of lovelessness does not care, not really care for those around it to become even polite. It does not care for their feelings or sensitivities. The loveless person is often overbearing, careless and even crude. That's worth thinking about. Love is not rude. There's no place for rudeness in expressing the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Love does not seek its own. Bible commentator R.C.H. Lenski touches the significance of this truth with his famous quote, um, and the quote is, Cure selfishness and you have just replanted the Garden of Eden, end of quote. Commenting on the same subject, one of the other commentators, whose name I haven't written in, says that Adam and Eve rejected God's way so that they could have their own. Self-replaced God does not seek its own. Seeks God's. Love is not provoked. I'm being very brief in dealing with these. We could perhaps have a message on Um, or each and every one of them but love is not provoked Matthew Henry has a beautiful succinct comment about that he says this anger cannot rest in the bosom where love reigns anger cannot rest in the bosom where love reigns love does not keep a record of wrongs done against it Now that's the same Greek word used to describe the pardoning act of God for those whose faith and trust is placed in our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take account of. Romans 4 verse 8. Love does not keep a record. No wrong is ever recorded for later reference. Love forgives. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. One of the most common forms of rejoicing in right, in unrighteousness or sin is gossip. This sin is un, is uncaring in its revealing of the weakness and sins of other people. Even gossip that is true is still gossip. And I don't think a person is ever, if so very rarely, is anyone helped by the spreading of news about his or her sin or failures. We used to have a series of choruses for the children, one line of which was, Be careful, little lips, what you say. We need to have governance, as James reminds us so powerfully, over the words of our mouths, as well as the meditation of our hearts. For those of us who are adults, we would add the question of what am I hoping to achieve for the extension of the kingdom of God by the conversation that I'm having. I mightn't call it gossip. Well, okay, whatever I call it, what's the purpose of it? Is it a positive thing aimed at promoting the interests of the kingdom of God? And the last one we can re- we comment on in any extent is love rejoices in the truth. This is the first of a series of positives. that We've had some negatives now. We've got some positives. Um, love cannot condone error or false doctrine. We have it in 2 John verse 6. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. Our lives are directed by the word of God, the commandments that he has given, the standards that he has put. That's love. We don't know. Can't put any other um, thing in place of the commandments of God. Well, it goes on. Love bears all things. Some lovely um, historical events to um, support these statements. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. And interestingly, and blessedly, love never withers or decays. I sometimes use that. That portion of this chapter where it goes on and speaking of when I was a child, I thought as a child, and so on. When I became a man, I put away childish things. The apostle is showing a thing that is growing, that is being enriched, that is enhancing, uh, being enhanced constantly throughout life. Starts off with a certain level of understanding and so on, and proceeds to grow and become more and more uh, pleasing. To the Lord well to just summarise these things I'll use a couple of quotes from um, the Apostle John 1 John 3:14 and 15 we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren he who does not love his brother abides in death scriptural words not mine John takes it further. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. We're not looking for fake presentations of uh, things that look good on the outside. He's speaking here of that which is inward, that which is inwrought by the Spirit of God within each of us. And he goes on, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his love to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Well, so much for the Lord's concern, so much for what he was concerned about, and then his command comes to us to repent, to remember what we've fallen from. Is there a background to each of us Where we have slipped from to be where we are today, perhaps we have never been in an adequate um, state of, of love for Christ and love for his people. But we need to remember, we need to exercise our minds thoughtfully over how we've fallen away from what's described here as first love. We're told, secondly, to repent. Now, I'd love to be able to take us through some of the experiences of David recorded for us in Psalm 51, where we have true repentance. This calls for an active repentance before God. The Saviour repeats the word to repent and then to redo, to do the former works, to get back to standards that are biblical and that are pleasing to the Lord. Loving Father, we thank you for the challenge of your word. We thank you for your infinite love for sinners like us. We thank you for the blessed work of our Lord, the Holy Spirit, who sheds your love abroad in our hearts as we come to him. And we commend one another to you as we take on board the thoughts of this um, beautiful letter this wonderfully caring letter of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that each one of us will be prepared to respond repentantly where needs be, that each one of us will be prepared to go forward manifesting the love of God as our Saviour exhorts to the church at Ephesus. And for this end, we commend each other to your grace. Now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Saviour be glory and majesty, dominion and power now and forever. Amen.